0: Well, good morning, St. Paul's. Um, Hope everyone's doing well. Thank you for joining us on live stream this morning. So as Keith said in the announcements, uh, we are pushing pause on our Revelation series uh, for the month of December. We will come back to it in January. Uh, We're more than two-thirds of the way through the book, and I'm excited to finish up the last six chapters. But we thought for December, let's do something a little bit more festive, a little bit more in the spirit of the season. Uh, so we're doing a series called Christmas Conversions and what I was thinking is that a lot of the most enduring Christmas movies uh have christmas conversions they have these uh they tell stories of characters undergoing a dramatic shift in perspective and um so over the next four messages or so uh the next three weeks, and then Christmas Eve, we're going to look at four popular Christmas movies and think about how the conversions in those movies depict things that are true, things that we also find in Scripture. And so, as Keith already said, this week's message, uh, is: we're going to be looking at It's a Wonderful Life. Um, It's already up there. All right, cool. Um, So, Just so you know, uh, if you didn't get a chance to watch It's a Wonderful Life, I know we sent out the weekly email on Friday, maybe you saw it, had a chance to watch it. If you didn't, that's okay. Um, I'm going to be recapping parts of it, the relevant parts. Um, And I imagine a lot of you, even if you didn't get a chance to watch it again, you're already familiar with it. Now, It's a Wonderful Life is definitely a movie that is worthy of that adjective, enduring. It came out in 1946 which means it is 74 years old, and it is still a Christmas staple for many people. Interestingly, it was not a big hit at first. Uh, It did not turn a profit for the studio. Uh, The critics' reviews were kind of mixed. And believe it or not, even the FBI had issues with it. Because that was during the time of the second Red Scare when the government was very nervous about communist influence through uh, Hollywood movies. And so they had this list of all the things that they considered possible communist propaganda in a movie. And there were two things And it's a, it's a Wonderful Life that they were worried were communist propaganda. You ready for this? So number one is that it depicted a rich banker as a villain, Mr. Potter. Of course, the protagonist, George Bailey, is also a banker, so I don't really follow their reasoning there. And uh, then the second reason is because it depicts George Bailey, an American, as having an existential crisis. And, of course, as we all know, communists like to convince people that uh, non-communists are having existential crises. So... Hopefully that sounds as ridiculous to you as it does to me, fortunately uh, those who were concerned at the FBI didn't shut down It's a Wonderful Life uh, from having its theatrical run. But anyway, my point is, the movie had a rough start, but it had certain qualities that people really connected with. And Uh, It actually was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture in 1946. I think it only won one award, which was one of the more minor ones, but it was nominated for five. And in 1990, it was recognized as culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant enough to be added to the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress. And then as recently as 2012, the American Film Institute put it on its list of the 100 best American films ever made, and actually put it at number one on its list of the most inspirational American films ever made. Now, I don't know if you agree with that assessment at all. Obviously, uh, these lists are trying to determine subjective things, right? Um, When I was a kid, I was not that impressed by It's a Wonderful Life. I remember it as this Uh, Movie that just kind of went on and on forever. It sort of played in the background during Christmas. It was black and white, which was automatically a strike against it. There was no uh, puppet Santa Claus in it or anything like that. Um, And, you know, I just, it didn't hold my attention. But I think it was sometime when I was in college. It was on, and I actually decided I'm going to pay attention to it from start to finish. And it really, really moved me. And since that time, uh, I have probably watched It's a Wonderful Life more Christmas seasons than not. And that last scene in the Baileys' home, it gets me uh, every single time. So let me give a, a real quick overview of the story. The central character is the man pictured there with his family, George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart. Uh, George was born in 1907 in a place called Bedford Falls. And from a young age, George is the kind of person who has big dreams. Uh, He wants to leave Bedford Falls and go out and see the world, and he wants to get a good education. He wants to become a rich architect. Uh, He wants to be the kind of person who lives an extraordinary life. And uh, some might even consider him kind of cocky, kind of arrogant. But he's not entirely self-focused. And uh, I'll give you a couple examples of that. Uh, For example, when he's uh, 12 years old, his younger brother Harry falls through the ice when they're sledding. And George does not hesitate. He jumps in that freezing cold water right away to save his brother's life. And then another example of George's ability to focus on others besides himself comes a little while after that. Uh, He's just a kid, but he's working at a pharmacy as a working at the counter and helping to deliver the prescriptions. And one day his boss, Mr. Gower, is very distraught because he's just found out that his son has died of influenza. Uh, This is around the time of another pandemic, uh, the Spanish uh, flu pandemic. And the pharmacist is trying to drown his sorrows by drinking on the job. And because of that, when he goes to fill a prescription, he accidentally fills the capsules with poison instead of the medicine. Now, George, just a kid, he sees this, and he knows that Mr. Gower has made this mistake. And so when when Mr. Gower tells him to go deliver the medication, he doesn't do it. But then when Mr. Gower finds out he hasn't delivered the medicine, he gets really angry. He's, He's drunk. He's upset. And so he starts beating George, boxing him over the ear until his, his ear bleeds. And George tearfully explains, look, you, you did something wrong to the capsules. And uh, Mr. Gower checks, and he realizes, oh my, oh my goodness, I did. And he, he breaks down, and he's, he's overwhelmed, uh, Mr. Gower. He's overwhelmed for two reasons. One, he's overwhelmed because of the mistake he almost just made, almost killing somebody. But I think he might even be more overwhelmed by George's kindness, Because even though George has every right to be angry at Mr. Gower, uh, even though he has uh, every right to run out of there because Mr. Gower is abusing him, he's concerned about Mr. Gower. He says, I know how you're feeling, sir. I know that you're not yourself. Don't worry. I'm not going to tell anyone about the mistake. And so that gives you an idea of the the kind of person that that George is. He has this, this kindness in him. Now, it's partially because of this kindness, this ability to focus on others besides himself, that George's life does not go the way that he plans. Um, When the movie... So, okay, early on in the movie, George is about 21 years old. And we usually expect that people that age are graduating from college. George still hasn't gone to college. And the reason he hasn't gone is because he's helping his father run Uh, his father's business. His father uh, has a bank and a mortgage um, lending business, the Bailey Building and Loan. And so George is helping his father do that and he's waiting until his younger brother Harry graduates from high school so that Harry can help his father and then he can go off to college. So Harry's finally graduating from from high school. George is 21. He's excited to get out and fulfill his dreams. But right when George is about to leave Bedford Falls, his father has a stroke. And the only way that the Bailey building alone will survive is if George sticks around to see it through. Now, George really wants to leave Bedford Falls. He, He doesn't want to be there, right? But he knows that if he leaves... The villainous, greedy Mr. Potter is going to be the only one who controls housing in Bedford Falls. And that's going to do a lot of harm to a lot of people. And so, George decides to stay, and his younger brother Harry goes to college instead. But when Harry leaves, they make an agreement. George is going to help the building and loan transition for the next four years. And then when Harry is done with college, Harry will step into that role that George has been managing, and then George will finally be able to leave and go and follow his dreams. But once again, George's plans don't work out because four years later, when he's about 25 years old, Harry comes home from college, and it turns out Harry's gotten married, and his wife uh, has through her father, his, her father offered a job um, to, to Harry. So Harry's father-in-law has offered him this great job. And George could press Harry to follow through on his commitment. But George recognizes that this is a great opportunity for Harry. He recognizes that his new sister-in-law would really like it if Harry could work for her father. And so, once again, George relinquishes his dreams and stays at the Bailey building in Lone. And then, uh, despite his initial reluctance, George ends up falling in love with a woman who lives in Bedford Falls. Uh, They move into a house in Bedford Falls, and they have a whole bunch of kids. And that pretty much seals the deal that his dreams of going off, going to college, becoming a rich architect, are gone. Now, when George is about 38 years old, he reaches a crisis point. And this is where the movie begins. So far, he has given his life to sustaining the the Bailey Building and Loan uh, so that people in the town can have good, affordable housing and Mr. Potter doesn't control everything. But shortly before Christmas... uh, George's uncle, who works for the Bailey Building and Loan, goes to make a deposit of $8,000, and he misplaces it. And when George realizes that this money has been lost, he knows that this is a disaster. This is going to be the end of the Bailey Building and Loan, and it's likely going to mean prison time for him. And he is so distraught that he goes home, he has this outburst at his family, his wife and his kids, and then he goes out drinking, and then he goes over to a bridge and he looks over at the freezing cold water below and he contemplates jumping in and committing suicide. But right at that moment, as he's thinking about that, another man goes into that freezing cold water and is begging for help. And just as George jumped into the freezing cold water to save his brother, uh, decades earlier, George jumps in that freezing cold water to save this man. And it turns out that this man is an angel named Clarence, and Clarence gives George a new perspective on his life. Now remember, okay, the name of this sermon series is Christmas Conversions. George Bailey's conversion is that he goes from being somebody who despairs of his life to being somebody who is thankful for his life and and who appreciates it. So what causes George's conversion? Well, there's several things. Now, I just want to be clear. Okay, I recognize that it's a wonderful life. It's not holy scripture. I can't tell you to turn to the book of George Bailey, chapter 3. Um, I also recognize that It's a Wonderful Life does not have perfect theology. Uh, I highly doubt that every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Uh, That's not actually in the Bible. I don't even think that angels have to earn their wings. In fact, I'm not even sure angels have wings. Okay, So yes, we don't get our theology from Hollywood. Um, But, intentionally or not, this story does depict things that are true, things that we also find in Scripture, things that can help convert us from despair to joy. So, what are those things? Well, what causes George's conversion? First thing, prayer. George offers a prayer of humble desperation, A prayer that I think many people can identify with. It's a simple one. He says, dear father in heaven, I'm not a praying man. But if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I am at the end of my rope. That is a prayer of humble desperation. And that is the kind of prayer that God delights to answer. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 51, verse 17, my sacrifice... O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. God might not answer our prayers of humble desperation by sending a goofy angel named Clarence, but He does honor those kinds of prayers. He does answer them. A prayer of humble desperation is often the place where true conversion begins conversion from death to life, conversion from despair. To joy. Now the second thing that helps George convert is he realizes how much his life matters. He realizes how much his life matters. Because Clarence gives, gives him a vision of what the world would look like if he had never been born. And there's some huge differences. Uh, for one thing, his brother isn't alive, because when his brother fell through the ice, no one saved him. And that also means that a whole bunch of other people aren't alive because Harry ends up going to war and ends up saving a bunch of people during the war. Uh, Another major difference is that Bedford Falls is completely owned by the greedy Mr. Potter, so it's a totally different kind of place. Uh, There isn't good affordable housing. Um, George's wife, Mary, hasn't gotten married And Mr. Gower, the pharmacist, he put that poison in those capsules. Those capsules went out. Uh, they, They killed somebody. He ended up in jail. And then he ended up a homeless alcoholic. And when George sees all these differences, he's horrified. And Clarence has a line that I think is really powerful. He says, strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. And when he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? One of the things that can help us move from despair to joy in our own lives is recognizing that our lives really do matter. Last week I talked about this idea that we are made in the image of God. And one of the things that means is that God has created us with an ability to influence the world around us. Part of the dignity of being made in the image of God, is that we have power to think, power to act, power to make choices that have consequences, power to influence. Now, yes, God is ultimately in control. Important to recognize that. But God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to create a world where human beings have the dignity of being made in his image and therefore having the ability to influence the world. There is power in a human life. Several years ago, I heard a story that really impressed upon me this idea of the power of a human life. I was listening to a podcast called Radio Lab. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, And they, they had an episode about this man, Fritz Haber. And I'd never heard of this guy before. And when I heard his story, I thought, why have I not heard about him? Uh, This man has influenced so many lives. I guarantee he's influenced your life. Uh, Fritz Haber was a German Jewish scientist, and in the early 1900s, he developed a process to increase food production. Uh, And he did this by figuring out a way to draw nitrogen out of the air and turn it into a liquid, ammonia, which could then be used to enrich soil so that more food grows. It's called the Haber process. And it was so revolutionary when he came up with it that people called it bread from the air because he had figured out this way to draw the nitrogen out of the air and grow more food by doing that. And it is impossible to understate the impact of this. Back in 1900, the world population was about 1.7 billion. Today, it's close to 8 billion. And one of the reasons that that is possible is because the world is producing enough food to sustain that many people. And one of the main reasons why we can produce that much food on the planet is because of the development of the Haber process. In fact, according to the podcast, about half of the nitrogen in your body right now came from the Haber process because it was taken out of the air, it went into your food, and then you ate it. So Fritz Haber has had an impact on your life. He has enabled billions of people, helped billions of people to be able to live. But there's a dark side to Haber's life as well. Because during World War I, Haber developed poisonous gases that were used in chemical warfare. And he's actually considered the father of chemical warfare. And some of those same gases were then used by the Nazis in World War II against Haber's own people. So Fritz Haber is this incredible illustration of the power of a life to influence the world, both for good and for evil. Our lives matter. Our choices matter. Now, getting back to George Bailey. So George was given a chance to see how much his life mattered. And specifically, he was given a chance to see how he had positively impacted the world. Now, what if you're not convinced that your life has had more positive effects than negative ones? What if you feel like you've done more harm than good? Well, the first thing I would say to that is it is healthy for us to recognize that all of us have had negative influence on the world. None of us is perfect. We all, in our own way, are like Fritz Haber. We are a mixed bag, good and bad. Sometimes we've used the power that God has given us to bless, and sometimes we've used it to cause harm. The book of Romans tells us that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. So, recognizing that all of our influence isn't isn't great is a healthy thing to do. It is. But what if you really think that the world would be better off without you? Uh, What if you think that if Clarence showed up to you and showed you a vision of the world without you in it, that you would say, yeah, that's better. If that's you, let me say a few things. First, keep in mind that before George talked to Clarence, that was the way he was feeling. Right? He said, I wish I had never been born. So you might be failing to recognize the positive impacts of your life. But secondly, and this is, this is more important, however your life has gone so far, however many mistakes you have made, This morning, I want you to hear God speaking to you through this scripture passage, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but here's the gist. Even if you are right that your life has caused a great deal of harm, God wants you to know that he has grace for you. Salvation is not dependent on what you have done, but on what Jesus has done for you. It is by grace that you have been saved. Not by what you've accomplished. Jesus is offering to you forgiveness and reconciliation with God. You can accept that regardless of what has gone on in your life up until this point. But look at what else it says. If you've done that, you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works. In other words, once you have put your faith in Christ... God is fashioning you, he's molding you, he's leading you to be someone who is a blessing in the world. To be someone who, as Jesus puts it, is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And maybe you are someone who's really misused your power. Whatever the the case, God wants you to recognize today that your life has power And then allow him to guide how you use that power. Your life matters, and there is incredible power in it for good uh, if you are surrendered to the will of God. All right, now there's another reason that George converts from despair to joy, and it's related to the last version, but I think um, it's related to the last point, but I think it deserves its own bullet point which is that he comes to appreciate the significance of an ordinary life. He comes to appreciate the significance of an ordinary life. Like I said, ever since George was a child, he's dreamed of doing things that he considered to be extraordinary. And in his mind, Bedford Falls, not extraordinary. The Bailey building in Lone, not extraordinary. But what Clarence showed him is how significant an ordinary life can be. How much an ordinary life, the presence of an ordinary life in a town, can transform it and make it better. And we too, as followers of Christ, should recognize the power of an ordinary life. Uh, I'm reminded of this passage from 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses 9 through 12, Paul writes, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders." Now, I don't know about you, but I'm struck by the simplicity of those instructions. Basically, love one another. Do it more and more. I shouldn't even need to tell you that. I don't need to tell you that. But, you know, keep, keep loving one another. Do it better than you already are. Work a job. Do it well. And live in a way that gains the respect of those around you who don't know the Lord. Simple instructions. Simple instructions. Now, just to clarify, living a quiet life doesn't mean avoiding doing anything significant. It doesn't mean literally being quiet. That word that gets translated as quiet, it implies not being gossipy and you know not stirring up unnecessary conflict, that sort of thing, it doesn't literally mean be silent. But even if we recognize that, It's clear that Paul is saying it's okay to live an ordinary life. Ordinary lives of faith expressing itself through love have an eternal impact. There's power in ordinary lives. Ordinary lives that don't have a hint of celebrity. Ordinary lives that don't have huge social media followings. Ordinary lives that never go far from their hometown. Those ordinary lives can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and God can work powerfully through them. So if you feel like you're living an ordinary life, this morning I want you to to recognize the power of that life, the power inherent in it. Recognize the power in every conversation you have. Uh, Recognize the power in every act of generosity that you perform. Recognize the power in listening someone who, listening to someone who needs to be listened to. Uh, recognize the power in every prayer that you pray. You are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You can have a powerful impact through your ordinary life, and your life matters. All right, so those are the reasons for George's conversion from despair to joy. Prayer, a prayer of humble desperation, uh, realizing how much his life matters, and coming to appreciate the significance of the ordinary life, the power in it. To finish, I want to recognize one other way that this story depicts a biblical truth. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, some people think that this verse is saying something like, whatever happens to you is good if you're a follower of Jesus. And I don't think that's quite right. What this is saying is that in all things... God works to bring good out of them for those that love Him. There's a difference there, okay? It's not that everything that happens to you is necessarily good, but God is always working to take the bad things that happen and squeeze good out of them. If you uh, fail at something, God will be at work in that moment to produce humility in you and to produce perseverance, which are great qualities. Trait, uh, character traits. Um, if tragedy strikes a community, God will be at work in his people, inspiring them to minister to that community and to bring hope and bring healing. If you sin and fall, God will be at work in your life to bring redemption and transformation. And I think that It's a Wonderful Life illustrates this idea in a powerful way. Good is brought out of the disappointments in George Bailey's life, and the final scene is an especially uh, powerful example of that. I said earlier that the last scene at the Bailey's house always gets me. What happens is that George comes home, happy to be alive because of what Clarence has shown him. Then there's icing on the cake. I mean, he expects that he's going to go to jail, but what happens is all the people in the town who have found out about George's predicament come and they bring money to recoup the money that was lost. And in so doing, they save the Bailey building and loan, and of course, uh, they, they save George, too. So what had been a horrible situation, a situation that led George to the brink of suicide... And to question the very value of his life has become a source of joy. And I think what Romans 8.28 tells us is that for those of us who follow Christ, God is working to do something similar in all of our disappointments. He's working to transform our sorrows into sources of eternal joy. He is working to transform our disappointments, our sorrows into sources of eternal joy. So trust him. Seek him. Follow his purpose for your life, even if it looks ordinary. Because that is the path that leads to joy. Let's pray. Lord... I pray that if any of us are feeling a sense of despair about life, uh, feeling like our lives don't matter or uh, that we've, we've messed up too much, Lord, I pray that you would infuse us with, with hope this morning. I pray that uh, you would enable us to see our lives as a story uh, that, that you want to write uh, and I pray that we would uh, surrender our our power over to you and allow uh, you to work through us, Lord, to be um, salt and light in the world. Lord, help us to recognize that we do matter. Uh, We matter uh, because you you have loved us and created us and empowered us. And uh, help us to see ourselves the way that you see us. In Jesus' name, amen.